Yeshayahu, class number one. Pass that around. Yeshayahu is divided up into two sections, essentially, but not in order. There are two major themes running through Yeshayahu, and the themes would be number one, the impending korban that Yeshayahu was prophesying about. Now, well, that's the second theme. The impending korban. Yeshayahu, remember this, Yeshayahu lived 110 years before the destruction of the first temple. He lived to see the exile of the ten tribes of the northern kingdom. He lived during the reign of the Assyrian kingdom. Ashur. Ashur was northeast of Israel. Okay. However, the kingdom that would eventually destroy the base of Migdash was not Ashur at all. Things would change in the world in the upcoming 110 years. Ashur would lose its power, and Bavel would emerge, Iraq. That, that would emerge as the world-dominating power, and they would be the ones to destroy the base of Migdash, and they would be the ones to take the Jewish people to exile to Iraq. And up until the mid-1900s, communities in Iraq existed who traced their roots back to Korban Bayes Rishon. Okay? The, um, one of the most ancient texts we have that have the actual text of the Torah specifically as every, you know, that every Torah should be written from was the Aleppo. And Aleppo, Syria was a codex, thousands of years old, that was the basis for all Torahs. There's a whole big story about what happened to the Aleppo Codex, how it ended up in Israel, how unfortunately parts of it for the first time in thousands of years are missing, how that happened. In any case, this is an ancient community, the community of Bavel, but by the time the Jewish people are going to return to Eretz Yisrael to build the second base of Megdash, Bavel is gone, and a new empire has conquered Bavel called Paras, Persia, and Madai, Paras, Umadai. That's where the Purim story takes place. Because according to conventional history, because there's also unconventional history, but according to conventional Jewish history, it is Esther in the time of Ahasuerus, who was already post-Bavel in Persia, okay, which is already Iran, and then that uh, that you know that we have the whole perm story which we're going to refer to, and then it's her child, ideological or maybe biological, we're not really sure, Daryavesh, who lets the Jewish people continue resume the building of the temple, and he's already media, he's already um, the 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 uh, empire of Madai. In between here, there's a very important character which we are going to now make reference to to help us have the background for chapter 42. Because 42 is not about the Chorban that Yeshayahu spent numerous, numerous, numerous chapters warning about, the sins that would lead to the Chorban, how the Chorban would take place. But then half, the other half of Yeshayahu is when he starts telling us about the Geula, after the Chorban, after the Gullahs, there will be a Geula. And he starts talking about the Geula. There are two Geulas uh, that Yeshayahu speaks about. He does speak about the Geula from the exile of the first temple and the return to build the second temple, which comes in that period post-Esther, pre-Esther and post-Esther. We'll get to that in a second. And then he spends a good amount of time, almost half of the chapters in the Sefer, 
refer to the future gula, the final end of the long second gulas. So he's speaking about the first gulas, the first korban, the first gulas, the end of the first gulas, the return to Eretz and then a huge amount of the sefer is devoted to the ultimate gula, Mashiach, Gogomagog, the whole thing. And that's why all the prophecies of comfort about the future Geula come from Yeshayahu, where most of that, not all, but we're so used to hearing Yeshayahu. For example, Nachamu, Nachamu, Ami, which we read, chapter 40, which we read on uh, Shabbos Nachamu, that's Yeshayahu. And, of course, when he speaks about the first, for last Geula, he speaks about the nature of, of the world, how things will be, justice will be restored, peace on earth will be restored, etc. All of humanity will recognize the truth. And that's why the Reform and the Christians, everybody loves Isaiah, because it's a universal, humanistic view of the world, and everybody is recognized as Hashem, everyone lives together peacefully, etc. Okay. There are two chapters juxtaposed to each other that we're going to look at now, 41 and 42. We're just going to look at the very end of 41 because what they are is Yeshayahu's prophecy about the king named Koresh, Cyrus, who will come at the end of the Babylonian era. He will be king of the Medes, Parasamadai. He will restore the Jews to Israel. He will let the Jews go back to Israel. He will see himself as the messenger among the non-Jews to fulfill Yeshayahu's prophecy from 200 years earlier to let the Jews go back to Israel. He will even know about Yeshayahu's prophecy. And he will feel himself and know himself to be the person Yeshayahu was referring to by name. And he will do as Yeshayahu said he would do all those years in advance. And he will proclaim that all the Jews must go back, can go back to Israel and build a temple. And that's the end of chapter 41. However, the fact of history is that it didn't go so smoothly. Not so many people went back. And then the enemies of the Jews stopped the entire project, the, build, the rebuilding of the temple project. It was in Ahasuerus' time that the project was halted. And that's where Ahasuerus kept telling Esther, Ad Ad Chatzi Hamalchus, until half my kingdom. Don't ask for me to start rebuilding the temple. The whole project came to a halt. It laid, you know, dormant, so to speak, for a very long time. Finally, with Esther's son or, or ideological heir, Daryavish, the project was resumed. How many years there was between Koresh, who allowed the rebuilding of the Beis HaMikdash, and the halting of the project, and the restarting of the project, in conventional history... It's just, it just spans the time from Ahasuerus to Daryavesh, not too many years. But, in a, but there's a big problem with conventional Jewish history, and if you start digging into that, you'll see that there's tons been written about this, including my grandfather. There could have been close to 168 years that, have, that are in that time period. And that's a whole subject in and of itself. My grandfather wrote an article called Comparative Jewish Chronology, of Schwab, and if it is true that there was a lot more years between Koresh and Daryavish than we think there were, okay, what that means is that we are 168 years further ahead in the counting of our history than we think we are, which makes us much closer to the year 6000 than we think we are. But that is a whole other subject for those interested in Jewish chronology. But right now, where we're starting from is, we're starting from the end of chapter 41, where he speaks about Koresh, 
and what would happen, what would eventually happen, and chapter 42, where he speaks about the Mashiach in our times, the ultimate Mashiach. The reason these two are juxtaposed to each other, you tell me. One leads to, but we're, we're reading Yeshayahu today. He's talking, he's going to tell us in chapter 42 how it's going to look, what things are going to look like when Mashiach comes. Who, he actually speaks about the personality of Mashiach. Okay, what kind of person, what, what, you know, what type of personality, what will he do, Mashiach, how will he spend his time, what will be unique about him. Why is that juxtaposed to the end of 41, where he speaks about Koresh, who was the leader, the, the emperor of the biggest kingdom of the non-Jews, who took upon himself to fulfill the calling of Yeshayahu hundreds of years earlier and send the Jews back to Israel. So the difference? As that one came true in all its details, so too will this one come true in all its details. Now, has anyone been to the British Museum? Okay, that's the, you have, them. that is probably, the, in my opinion, the best museum ever in the world, you know, that's an, um, it is a museum of archaeology, and right when you walk in on the first floor of the British Museum, you get, straight in front of you, the Rosetta Stone, you know what that is, it helped us decipher hieroglyphics, a little bit to the left is the Cyrus Cylinder, and in the next room is the Elgin Marbles from the Pantheon. They have, basically, they stole everybody's stuff. Okay. Yeah, they took everybody's stuff. So the Cyrus Cylinder, the Koresh, go Google it today. Google Cyrus Cylinder. It's about this big. It looks like a football. It is one of the most precious artifacts in existence in the world. On it, Koresh writes... It's from Koresh, and he writes exactly what Yeshayahu says. I, the king Cyrus of Media, hereby proclaim that the Jews may return to build their temple in Israel. He writes exactly what Yeshayahu says he will do and he will say, which he fulfilled. Okay, so let's look at the end of chapter 41. For those that have my grandfather Sefer, of Schwab and Yeshayahu, um, it's on page 457, Okay. All right. Now, in this chapter, he doesn't spend as much time as he will later on identifying the details of Koresh's mission, but he does make reference to Koresh here, and he um, and he tells us that this king of the of the the greatest empire in the world, okay, will will start to will arise. And it will, when he does what he does, which will constitute basically the biggest Kiddush Hashem possible, okay, being that he, um, he will take Yeshayahu's words personally, uh, he will, you know, fulfill what the Jewish, what the Navi said would happen. It will prove that all the other ideologies, all the other empires, everybody else who had all their own, uh, you know, um, you know, uh, hopes and dreams for their, you know, for their, um, you know, self-aggrandizement, all of this will fall away because look at what's happening as the prophet prophesied, the Jewish prophet prophesied so many years earlier. He is fulfilling. How else? This is the ultimate truth. This proves the truth. And this will, this could have been, this could have been a moment 
had the Jewish people responded fully, this could have been a moment, a totally transformative moment. The Jews could have all gone back. Only 43,000 went back, by the way. And Mashiach could have come. We had the, the uh, David HaMelech had a descendant there, Zerubbabel, who could have become Mashiach. They had been over already. Oh, they were already over? Okay. They were already over. Okay. And um, then there was a halt to the project. Oh, no, are we talking about by Koresh or Badayavish? Koresh. No. So, the, so this is a big controversy about the 70 years and all of that. How does that work? <laughs> if you're interested, okay. I will forward, I will put on the email a, well, actually it's in written form. It's not on in electronic, but I will copy the article, Comparative Jewish Chronology, if you're history-minded, and you can go back and forth through all the details about what really might have been going on here, okay? So, um, so, but after the 70 years ended, there was a start, a long pause, and a restart. Okay, so basically, in the end of Chapter 41, do you have it? Um, well, if you we're just going to scan through it a little bit, Pusik 25 because this doesn't refer directly yet to Koresh, but we'll read it through in English because we really want to focus on chapter 42. I awakened from the north, and he came from the rising of the sun. He will call my name, and he will come, he will call in my name, and he will come over princes as mortars, and as a potter will he trample clay. In other words, this it will be so overwhelming what this king from the north will do that it'll, it'll, he won't even face resistance. Okay, let me just read you a little bit from what um, my grandfather says here, okay? He says, um, he's referring to the appearance on the world scene of the king Koresh. His ascension to the throne of the consolidated Persian Median Empire was a seminal event in Jewish history as it was associated with the beginning of the end of Gullus Babel. In prophesying about this event, which would occur almost 200 years after Yeshua's death, he is saying to the false prophets and idol worshippers by implication, long after my lifetime, when this prophecy is realized, it will be known that only one, speaking in the name of Kaddish Baruch Hu, can predict an event so far in the future. Koresh assumed control over the Persian Median Empire, which constituted the entire then-known civilized world, after the death of his Median predecessor, Daryavish. There was a different Daryavish. Don't get confused. Okay? Where are you reading it? From my grandfather on page 457. There were more than one Daryavishes. Before the rule of the Persian Median Alliance, the Babylonians were the dominant rulers in the Near East. They had developed earlier from a small, unimportant country, Bavil, and eventually became so powerful that they overthrew the Assyrian Empire, that had been the one that had exiled the ten tribes, and added Yehuda in Israel to their empire. The Babylonians took control of all of Israel, destroyed the base of Migdash, exiled the entire Jewish population from the land, the powerful empire lasted for exactly 70 years and was then overthrown by the Persian Median Alliance, which developed into a world empire from which was a, what was originally a group of wild trab, tribes who inhabited the mountains of Persia and Media. And then in Ezra, chapter 1, we read that Koresh, during the first year of his reign, issued the following remarkable proclamation to the people of his kingdom, and it is to this proclamation that Yeshayahu's Nevoah here refers, and this is what it says on the Cyrus Cylinder. So says Korish, king of Persia, Hashem, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. I'm reading it in English, of course. And he commanded me to build a, build a house to him in Yerushalayim, that is in Yehuda, 
Whoever among you from all his people who will go up to Yerushalayim, that is in Yehuda, and will build the house of Hashem, the God of Israel, he is the God who is in Yerushalayim, may his God be with him. Anyone can go. Korish proclaims here that a mandate from Hashem to build the base of Migdash, he has a mandate from Hashem to build the base of Migdash in Yerushalayim. He tells the Jews that any of them so inclined is encouraged to go and help with the construction. This proclamation is what is known as the Pekita, the divine remembrance of the Jewish people, marking the beginning of the end of Golos Bavol, which could have heralded the coming of Mashiach. Had the Jewish people taken advantage of this proclamation and returned en masse to Eretz Yisrael, instead merely 43,000 returned, and therefore Zerubbabel, a descendant of the Davidic house, who could have come Mashiach, didn't. And so now the Nevoah predicting Korish's rise to power begins here. So... It was known. It was known. I guess he was told it. It was known in the world. He was shown it, and he fulfilled it. Now, what we're what we're focusing on is this point. What do we mean when we say Mashiach could have come? Okay, there's often that we hear that a lot of times. Had the Jewish people been a little bit better, Mashiach could have come. What does that mean? Okay, when we start reading chapter 42 now, and we see what Mashiach does what his role is, we'll have a better understanding of what we mean when we say Mashiach could have come. One thing this does not mean. It does not mean that at this point, had 43, more than 43,000 Jews gone back to Israel, somebody would have arisen in the world, done great miracles, subdued all the enemies, rebuilt the base. I mean, it's just not what it means. The Mashiach, some supernatural God, you know, created like this uh, unusual person who's never been seen before, and he emerges on the scene, and he controls, takes control of everything, and he, you know, and he you know, neutralizes the enemies and does great miracles. That is not at all what it means that Mashiach could have come. Okay. We're going to see in chapter 42 what Mashiach does, and then we'll have a more sophisticated understanding of what it means Mashiach could have come. Okay? So, look at chapter 42. Okay? And, um, and look, and just, we're going to read the first few psukim, and it's probably going to be surprising. Okay? So look at, it starts in Pasagalov, Hain Avdi. Okay? So this is Mashiach. This is the personality of Mashiach. Who is this person who could have come so many times, but in the end of days will finally emerge? Hain Avdi is my servant. In other words, what? He's working on behalf of God. He sees himself playing, doing, working very hard as God's servant, God's messenger. Okay? Next, Etmochbo. I will invest in him even be supported by him, could be in, in one of the explanations. Litmoch, right, to sustain somebody, to support someone. So etmoch bo, there's, there's, it's a double meaning. I will invest in him, or I will be supported, invested in by him. It's mutual. He will invest in Hashem's word, right? And I will be invested in him. I will, he'll, I need him. He will be somebody that I depend on, okay, that, I, that supports me, and I will lean upon him for support in addition. Okay, keep going. Bechiri, my chosen one. Ratzta nafshi, what does that mean? Ratzta nafshi, my nefesh, Hashem is saying, my spirit is what? 
has ratzon for him. What does that mean? Ratzta nafshi. So my grandfather explains here, ratzta nafshi. My soul has found him favorable. My soul has found him, Hashem's spirit has found this person favorable. So this is not some magical, you know, Superman that Hashem creates. This is somebody that Hashem invests in, that he finds him, he finds him favorable, that he sees this man is working so hard for Hashem. The word rutz tanafshi, let's digress for one second on that word. I, he has rutzon in my eyes. He's motzechein in my eyes. So Rav Hirsch has a beautiful um, interpretation of a pasuk we say all the time in Ashrei. Poseach es yadecha umazbiya lekolchai ratzon. The grammar, the syntax of that verse is off. Think about it. Poteach et yadecha, you open your hand. What, how would you phrase the second half? Umazbiya. Mazbiya kolchai ratzon. Mazbiya ratzon kolchai. You satisfy the need, the ratzon, the desire of each of every living thing. No? Makes more sense? Mazbiya ratzon kolchai. We have a ratzon, we have needs, it is will of desire for life, for health, and Hashem satisfies it. But the Pasuk says, Poteach et yadecha, you open your hand. Umazbiya kolchai ratzon. What? Satisfy. Like sova. Sovea. Achalta v'savata. So Rav Hirsch says, by what method does Hashem satisfy the needs of every human being? What's the natural process that lends itself to making sure that the needs of human beings are satisfied? In the nat- obviously, barring the interference of corrupt governments who interfere with the distribution of food and, and necessities that human beings otherwise would, you know, would be able to acquire. The starvation in the world and all of that has nothing to do with lack of supply. It has to do with dis- interference with distribution, <laughs> where, where evil, really evil leaders hoard the food and don't allow it to reach their people, you know, because of, uh, you know, either for money purposes, power purposes, and things like that, right? Or they don't allow their people to produce, or they take all the produce, stuff like that. So, so... Ratzon, Rav Hirsch says, is a quality, like chen, it's chen, that somebody has ratzon in somebody else's eyes. Somebody is wanted by someone else. You go on a job interview, and for some reason, the person who interviews you wants you. Okay? There's something about you that appeals to them. That's ratzon. Ratzon nafshi. My soul desires you, it, or desires the person, and that's how the person gets pranasa. Somebody appreciates the person and is willing to sell something to them or to hire them or to give them something for a little less money or to do business with them or to provide for them. The reason we provide for our children is because that we find they find chain in our eyes, right? Even no matter how horrible they are generally, <laughs> right? They, we, so that quality of ratzon, ratztanafshi, is how Hashem provides, makes sure the people are able to obtain what they need from others and from the world. So here he says, this person, he's my servant, he's working for me. He's supporting me and I'm investing in him. And he is chosen by me. He's unique. I've selected him among everybody because he has rutzon. I He finds favor in my eyes. He's unusual. I want to invest in this person. Okay? What is he? Nasati ruchi alav. He, so there, after all this, I have allowed my spirit to rest upon him, seeing all this. 
Mishpat Lagoyim Yotzia. What will he do? What's his the the job? Mishpat Lagoyim. Justice for humanity. Everybody. This is universal. The end of days. So this is a person who finds within himself the calling, the talent, the devotion to speak on behalf of God, who is up to the task, like Avraham, same type of thing, up to the task of inspiring, clarifying, establishing truth and justice for the world, setting himself up as the consummate teacher who can ex- bring people back finally to an understanding, to close to truth and reality. And Hashem sees how hard he's working at this task and how he's supporting Hashem's word. He is speaking on behalf of Hashem. Hashem invests in him. Hashem gives him this Ruach Elohim, a special Siata Deshmaya to be able to do this. We're not talking about any miracles here at all. There's no miracles. This is a leader by persuasion, by his word, by his ideas. And he takes it upon himself to play this role. Okay, let's go a little further. Could be also that a Mespia Kochai Ratzon, he is um, he he's sat with he's making people um, available to receive the Ratzon of Hashem. He is like it's a nice thing. I mean, he is. You have to try to link it to the words. You know, he's satisfying people by giving them or satisfying people by giving them a rutzon, a will to receive and to appreciate when they're receiving something it has to it's it's obviously more than just saying he satisfies what everyone needs he's it's talking about a quality that 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 is in you know that's necessary in order for people to get what they need in this world either by the fact that other people find them appealing or they make themselves Chavi suggesting is open to wanting to receive from Hashem and recognizing. Now look at the next Pasuk. This Moshiach, when he starts to talk to the world about truth, Lo Yitzak, he's not even going to scream. They're not going to get up there and prove his point and, and sh- show PowerPoints about how Israel is right and the Goya and then we, you know, and we have, and, uh, and, and, it is dis- and the media is distorted and this whole refusal to give us any credibility is a big fat line. He's not going to scream and there's not going to be any drama. Lo Yitzak, Velo Yisa. And he will not lift up his voice. Velo Yashmia Bachutz Kolo. He's not even going to raise his voice. To make it heard outside, he's just going to talk, and people are going to stream to him, and he's going to explain things, and he's not even going to try to persuade people to lift up his voice and let it be heard, and try to get on talk shows and try to send out, you know, you know, blast, you know, through social media, whatever they're going to do, or go on the news. He's not going to make any effort. He's not even going to assert any effort to try to convince anybody anything, to try to force people into anything. Okay, that is, this is, right? Look what happens. Even further. He will not even break a damaged reed. In other words, he won't even have to spend as much effort as it would take to break a broken reed. Like nothing. It's going to be, he, Mashiach, will not be the one going out there to prove a point at all. And he's certainly, according to this, not doing any nisim. Okay. He won't even break a broken reed. Oh, gosh. 
and he will not even extinguish a smoldering wick. Imagine a wick, it's not even burning in fire, it's just a little bit red still, and you put it out, it's, he won't even have to do that. Okay, there'll be no fires to put out. Not even a smoldering ember. In other words, we think of Mashiach as putting out fires. The world is crazy. Everybody, ISIS is running wild. The refugees are rampaging through Europe. Everybody, right? And Mashiach is going to come and, you know, overwhelm everyone with great miracles and subdue everyone and everyone will recognize Hashem. It'll be like some type of positive 9-11, like some huge drama that everyone will sit back in total shock in positive ways. And say, oh my goodness, who knew about Hashem? That's not what the Navi is saying at all, all right? He says he won't even have to use as much effort as to put out a little ember of a burning flax. But what will happen? Le'emes yotze mishpat. The truth itself will bring forth the justice that Mashiach will speak about, and Mashiach will establish justice in the world. That's his role. Now, to further elaborate on this, and then we'll talk about it, jump back to chapter 11, which in my book is, which in this book is on page, page 131, okay? Here is another description of Mashiach, right in the beginning. We did this last year for the people that were in Rena Fuchs' house. Huh? That's right. So here, chapter 11, look what it says. Let's just quickly read it. A shoot will go forth from the trunk of Yishai. That means it will be directly descendant of David. And a blossom will grow from its roots. The Spirit of Hashem will rest upon him. Intelligence of all sorts. Wisdom and strength. Good advice, good counsel. Ruach das, knowledge, v'yiras Hashem, and fear Hashem. V'arichu v'yiras Hashem, v'lo l'marei na'im yishpat. And he will smell out what's right and wrong. And he will not judge by what he sees. He'll have a much deeper, wiser, intuitive perception of things. And he'll call right, he'll distinguish right from wrong by, by his senses. He'll see, it'll be so clear. Mashiach will, able to be, will be able to identify good from bad. And what he hears is that's not how he's going to judge anything, not by what he sees, not by what he hears. He's much smarter than that, much more intuitive. He will start just, justly judging the poor. And he will admonish the humble of the land with correctness. Now look at the next words. And he will smite the land with the, with the rod of his mouth, with his words. His truth and his clarity and the justice of what he's saying is so powerful, that is his sword. And just with the breath of his lips, with the, with the um, breath, you know, with the, what comes out of your mouth as you speak, that's Ruach Tzvasav, Yamis Rasha. That's how Rashayim will be obliterated, by what he says. We're talking about Mashiach, Rashayim makes this very clear, who takes control by having, be, being a spokesman of truth. And that will completely neutralize all the enemies. That is his sword. Nobody can stand up before the truth that he speaks. This is a war of ideas, a war of words. This is not a war of great miracles like God breaking open the heavens and all of that. But what will give M- Mashiach the license 
to do this? How will he be in a position to speak and be listened to, to judge, to be considered true, the person you, the go-to person for truth and clarity who's given freely, you know, you know, the opportunity to teach, to govern, to guide. How will this come about that such a person will emerge in the world, right? now? And now when we say that had all the Jews gone back to Eretz Yisrael when Koresh let them, Mashiach could have come, what we mean to say is that there was such a Kiddush Hashem in the world, the fulfillment of a king of Koresh, the whole, the emperor of the whole entire world at the time, who openly said, I will fulfill the words of Yeshayahu and fulfill the will of God and send the Jews back. It was such a big Kiddush Hashem. It could have been the time for a person like this to emerge, speak on behalf of Hashem, speak on behalf of the truth of the Nevoahs, speak about what is just and correct, and try to win over the world, transform the world with the ideas. That's what we mean. It was an opportune moment for the world to see, to learn, to, to accept the truth. It was such a huge Kiddush Hashem that that means the time was right. Does this make sense? Yeah. By the way, we will discuss soon the lack of miracles that Yeshayahu talks about, that, that Yeshayahu, in effect, is clearly stating, right? Because we have a famous Gemara that says that the miracles of the end of days will make the miracles of Yetzirah Mitzrayim pale in significance. So what are we talking about here? The fact that the building of the Beis HaMadosh was halted, is that due to the fact that we did not recognize this tremendous miracle and we did not all return to Mass? Was that our... There was 43,000 went back, not, in a, not everybody. <laughs> Those 43,000 were the... He's like, I just came back from Australia, kind of like the same type of chever that's built Australia. You know, they sent all the convicts over there. It was like people, the, 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 you know, marginalized from society. Nobody who, the, the heads of institutions, communities did not go back. Later they came. Ezra came a little later. Yeah. Ezra, they came. Ezra came with a group at this, at this point. But no, but the people that came with them were not the leaders and the situation that deteriorated once they got to Israel. Ezra found a community when he finally came up later. Of They weren't in Shomer Shabbos anymore, married to Goyim. It was a terrible situation. So then that, those people that came, that tried to rebuild the land, they um, faced tremendous opposition by the inhabitants of the land who appealed to the king to stop the whole project, which was stopped. But um, it's kind of, those people that went back were not the leaders of the Gullus communities, were not the total leaders, kind of exactly like what happened back in the day, 100 years ago in the early 1900s, 1910s, 1920s, who came to Israel, right? And uh, it certainly wasn't the, the leaders of the Gullus Torah community at all. It was non-religious people, essentially, Chalutzim, uh, you know, it wasn't a country, it wasn't built on religious observance, the whole entire thing, same, very similar. But why are we giving them credit because they did go back? Yeah, we are. And the chalutzim that went, we sure. the ones that had it not been for them. You're right, I'm not would saying... not have in any way had Eretz Yisrael and... It's not, they are not, not the ones... 48, the same thing. They are not the ones who don't get, who are not being given credit. The ones who went back are being given credit. We're saying that the, the established people didn't go with them, and therefore the so situation... The yes, people, and therefore... And therefore, and therefore, the situation 
being that it was started by these people, religiously degenerated. And the country was a place that later Ezra came and found was spiritually a desert. It was a terrible situation going on. That's, well, you have to read the history. But um, you have to read the whole history of how that all played out. But yes, it's obviously a, a, a criticism on the establishment who did not join this effort. Yeah. It's what Russell Beach calls the cold Dogi effect. And from the time that there was Chizkiyahu and Yoshiyahu, we had multiple times in our history where we could have merited to have the Ruach of Hashem rest upon a, a special individual, and the merit of the people didn't allow it. Had Nachshon been Aminata not been the first one to go into Yamsuk, we have even merited to So when we say the merit of the people didn't allow it, in other words, this could have been had everybody come back to Eretz Yisrael, okay, this could have been a breakthrough moment where this Mashiach could have spoken in God's name, saying, look at what happened here. The king offered this, you know, made this offer. The entire Jewish people are coming back. This speaks of the prophecies. But when the Jews themselves don't take advantage of this opportunity, and the Jews themselves didn't return, the Jews themselves are not enthused by Yeshayahu's message, and Yeshayahu's own message about returning to Israel didn't speak to the Jews, how can somebody get up and use this moment as a proof of you know, God's will being you know, affected in the world, affected in the world? That's the problem here. And the, the ultimate proof is that they say, all the Chagim were banned except for Raymond We'll, human we'll talk about that in a second. Your Chagim, your Purim and Chagim. What's the essence of it? It's happening right now. Yeah. We're right now, the thing is that everybody, not everybody, can pick up whatever their situation is, right? However, the American Jewry, hopefully, and you know, and to the degree that this lessens, it's a terrible tragedy. It's very invested in what goes on in Eretz Yisrael. Most of the tzedakah organizations in Israel funded by Americans and Chutznekim, not Israelis, actually. And, um, and yeah, at least we're very invested in developing the country there. We have people go there, have homes there, all that. Not everybody can pick up on the spot. Not every situation is, is like that. Even but, the European Jews are not running. But, you know, um, the, differ the difference is that we don't have a coach who is, he was like, he was like a, a world leader yeah. who said, you can go. We don't have that. We have all these countries who say, no, we can divide this land, we can give this back, we can sign. So it's not right. really not even so Daniel's Daniel, so you're getting into a very complicated story here. Daniel makes reference to the fact that the Second Temple era, the Second Temple was not really the restoration of the First Temple. It was not a restoration of the First Temple. It was not destined to survive. So there was that latent that latent thing in there. But even if the Second Temple was not destined to survive, and even if the Second Temple era was just a temporary return to Israel before the Long Gullis, which was built into the system, even if that was the case, it still doesn't mean that for the time that we had it and for the time that it was available, the Jews should have rejected it. So, you know, even if it was, a, it was built in, that it might have been temporary, that doesn't give a license for everybody to just dismiss it then. So we are definitely faulted for the fact that people didn't go back. 
and Mashiach didn't come. But what I'm focusing on here now is when we say Mashiach could have come and Mashiach didn't come, in a more sophisticated way, what we're saying is when there's an opportunity in the world, for, when there's a Kiddush Hashem, when seems to be moments where the curtain is pulled away and you see the truth of the Torah message and the prophet's message and the world is listening and the greatest person on earth believes in it and submits to it and has respect for it, that's a moment that the Jewish people could then take a leadership position in the, with, this, with one person at the helm to teach the world about what's right and wrong and how they should live. And that mo- if the Jewish people didn't have even confidence in that, you know, in seeing this through, how are you going to influence the world? Now, Yeshayahu does say that in the end of days, when Mashiach does try to start teaching, what's going to happen, this is in a previous chapter even, what's going to happen is, and we learned this last year, for those who are, what's going to happen is that nations of the world are going to come streaming to Yerushalayim to be taught. And what's going to happen is, Mashiach is going to be teaching, and there'll be Torah emanating from Zion. But even the Jews who live in Israel will need to be taught by Mashiach, because when the nations of the world come streaming, saying, teach me, enlighten me, show me, there'll be an unfortunate large percentage of Jews, well, Yeshayahu says this 3,000 years ago, that will have nothing to offer other than the wisdom they learned in the East. Eastern wisdom, Buddhism, whatever they picked up in Goa, which is where, unfortunately, a lot of Israelis spend their time. Right? But after the army and all that, they go eastward, Bangkok and Thailand and Goa. And, and Yeshayahu says, India. India. And Yeshayahu says exactly that. They're going to come to ask every Jew they find, teach me, and the Jews won't even know what to teach. They'll just know about Buddhism. That's in an earlier chapter in Yeshua. We're going to look at it. We're going to look at it in Mirta Shem soon. Yeah. I'm just wondering, was there anything in it for Koresh himself? Like, why did he do it? Truth. Compelled by the truth. Compelled by the truth. Because he saw a Nebuah about him by name 200 years earlier. Where did he see that? In Shayahu. He was shown it. Yeah, of course. It was his name predicting the whole thing. And I mean, now... Well, we have to talk about this. What we, the question we are left with for the next few minutes is, what, what has happened in the world to set the stage for Mashiach being able to do this, for this person to emerge who speaks of justice and truth? And his message is so compelling, he won't even have to put in any effort to convince anybody. There's no persuasion here. They've already been persuaded. Now they just want to learn. Okay, Mashiach isn't even the one who persuades them. He doesn't even enter the world to through, you know, through with with awe and shock, do great things that are gonna open their eyes and make them fall to their knees and say, accept well fine, we accept Hashem. That's not at all how Mashiach is being described. Either forty two or eleven. Correct? We all agree on that? So what will have happened before this to set the stage for Mashiach? Here's where we get into an idea which we will make reference to again and again because no other way to understand Shayahu other than with this paradigm. Okay, this is a paradigm. When the Gemara says that the Nisim of the end of days will make the Nisim of Pesach look like nothing, like pale and significant, what do they mean? I mean, what could be greater than the splitting of the sea and all of the fall of the mon, etc., etc.? We also know that the miracles of Purim are the paradigm for the miracles of the end of days.
Purim was set between the first base of Migdash and the second base of Migdash for, to give us a glimpse, to establish, to set up for us a paradigm that we hold on to that we will finally experience in the end of days. Purim is a glimpse at the light at the end of the historic tunnel. Purim comes after Chorban Bayis Rishon to show us what the Gula will look like before we start the Long Gullus, which the Second Temple era is actually part of, the Long Gullus. Okay? So, what is it? Look at the Purim story. In the, it's very, if you break it down, it's, we can make it very simple. In the Pesach story, God showed us that nature obeys God's will, whether they like it or not, correct? That nature will respond to Hashem's will, and on behalf of the Jewish people, with clarity, nature will operate in a way that clearly protects, promotes, and advances the Jewish people's interests, correct? The sea will split, the moon will fall, the land will open, the earth will open its mouth to swallow Korah, who challenged Moshe. Boom. Okay? Shift to the end of days. Same exact thing, but we have to add one word. Nature will comply with the will of God in the most obvious way to promote the Jewish people, to advance their causes, to strengthen them. The only word we're introducing here is before the word nature, put in one more word, Human, human nature will be harnessed so that humans themselves, using their own human initiative, doing everything they can to oppose God's will, Hashem will use their own nature, their own bechira, their own concoctions in their head, their own plans on behalf of the Jewish people to promote and advance the Jewish people. So, for example, a Purim miracle in the end of days would be that Iran, which is exactly where Haman came from, and Achazarish, that Iran builds the bomb. And they invest everything into it. And they fight to get their nuclear program and freedom. They're like, then they're just all right. And then they threaten the world. They're about to drop it and they build their ballistic missiles, which Ron Dermer explained to America, by the way, the intercontinental ballistic missiles, they're not for Israel. Okay? We don't, we don't need, that's for, they're for you. Yeah. So, um, so Iran does everything, right? And then they announce the launch. They're going to obliterate Israel and da 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 And they push the button. And they launch the bomb. And somehow, through some miracle that is not an open miracle at all, human nature, error, human error, or maybe some very smart Israeli invention, the bomb explodes all over Iran. Mm-hmm. Ta-da! Okay, and there's no radiation, you know, spreading over Israel. That would be a Purim miracle. It's exactly what happened in the Purim story. That's what happened in the Purim story. But Hashem uses human nature to prove Enod Milvado and to advance the cause of the Jews. After such an event, the situation is set, the, the stage is set, and Mashiach will now get up and without even the slightest effort teach the world about what Hashem wants and what's right and wrong and how there's only one truth, and all efforts directed to oppose that are doomed to failure, and it won't even take the slightest bit of persuasion. That's the glimpse at the end of the historic tunnel. That's what Yeshua is talking about. Mashiach will take advantage of an opportunity, which will be so dramatic, 
so clear, so obvious that the stage will be set. But the not, it is not just the Amim, the far-flung nations that will say, please teach us. The Jews will say, please teach us. Right? Because there'll be a lot of Jews who are as far-flung as the nations. Yeah. It strikes me that uh, this part of the Gemara that speaks about the time of Mashiach going to the Beit HaMikdash and standing atop, like your grandfather said, he calls us Anabim, and it would make sense that he would try to convince them, you know, look at my face and, and you will believe because they're non-believers mostly and they don't have the capacity to understand so this will wake everybody up. Some event will take place that will wake people up. But that's why now, based on this kind of understanding, let's just reread the first two, couple of Sukkot 42. Yeah. Just as a comment, I guess, as you're saying that, it sounds like an amazing miracle, presumably, if it happens. But when you think about it, so many of those things have already happened with regards to Israel. So what's the difference? Why have so that's really where it says the Nisim of the end of days will be so astonishing that it will make the Nisim of Pesach pale and significant. So there'll be something on such a level. Yeah, there's many things on a lower level. Right. Well, well, we lost people last summer. We lost people and. You know, so it's going to be on such a degree that it's conclusive, just like the splitting of the sea. Yeah. But, but like, would, uh, would the six-day work? What, 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 what we're learning about, what the Nevi talks about at the time, when people will openly recognize, oh, there is a Hashem we want to learn more about this. The six-day war, we really got our chance. The Baal Tshuva movement, movement, the Baal Tshuva movement, movement effectively started after the 67 war. And it was strong for 20 years, and then began to peter out, believe it or not. But in Israel, like, you know, all the, like, you know, the songs, very little was coming out about Hashem. It was all about, like, the... the, You're right, there was both these and those, but they're... how strong we are, we, you know, in a minute, we... So there's always the choice of how we'll respond. There was also, like we said, a big Belshuva movement launched. But you're right, it'll be people's choice. But this will be... So conclusive that people will be compelled to face it. That's what I'm saying. Now let's just look at the couple chat sukkim again one more time. Now they make sense. Hein Avdi, he's my servant. Et mochbo, I will invest in him, give him wisdom, knowledge. You know, um, uh, artic- you know, the ability to speak in a in a in our so, you know an articulate way, convincing way. Bechiri, I will have chosen him. Ratzta nafshi, and my soul will find him favorable. Nasati ruchi alav. I will let my spirit rest upon him. Mishpat and he will start teaching justice. He will not scream. He will not raise his voice. He will not try to make it heard. He won't have to do anything. He won't even have to break a broken reed. It's all going to be this person who is going to stand up. The power of Mashiach, as we're seeing, is his, is his, his, his messages. There is, this, this is a whole shift in how often we think about what Mashiach will do when Mashiach comes, right? It's all about knowledge, learning, Clarify, clarifying, enlightening, wisdom. Those people that have the sense to start learning before this are going to be in a much better position. Nobody wants to be caught dumbfounded with knowing nothing when this time comes. And as you said, what's your name back there? 
Bela, there's enough already in play for people to start waking up and learning and seeing. And not just Jews, there are non-Jews who wake up and throw their lot in with the Jewish people, see what's going on, sign up. This is happening all, all, also. It happens not, with, not on a mass scale, but it's happening. So, we're going to continue next week with further descriptions of Mashiach. Everybody